Perhaps you've heard the expression, you had one job. It's, uh, it was made famous by the internet. Uh, it probably peaked a few years ago, but it still lives on. And it is a catchphrase that is used to call attention to the stupid things that people do at work. Okay, they, they have one job to do, and you have one job is a response to their failing to do the one and only thing that they had to do. So I found some examples to show you from the internet. So this is the first one. So obviously someone's making a t-shirt of Asia, and what do they do? They put Africa on it. You had one job. Or Superman on a backpack, but they tell us it's Batman. You had one job, and you can't get your superheroes right. Next one, please. So this is, here we go, you had one job, the left button points right, the right button points left, you had one job. Next one, please. Well, that's self-explanatory, isn't it? There we are. You had one job to mark the roads, and you can't get it right. Next one, please. Well, this is someone ordered a birthday cake, and they said, just right, happy birthday on it, and they had one job. Okay, and the final one, this is my favorite one. This is one of these... Um, inspiring Bible verse calendars, and it, it quotes Luke 4, 7, if thou wilt worship me, all shall be thine. It sounds lovely until you realize those are the words of Satan, tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Slightly less inspiring when you know who wrote it or who said those, right? So you had one job. Thanks, guys. Well, today Paul tells us that he had one job and that he didn't shirk from it. He didn't shrink back from it. He didn't fail uh, to complete it. He was successful. And this is what he says to us in second, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Let's read along together. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul had planted this church in Corinthians, but its growth and maturity had stunted. And the primary reason was the pagan culture was pressing down on the church and shaping it into its godless way of life. And it had left such an imprint on the church that the church was no longer able to function it properly or healthily. They had, there was a lack of love towards one another and a lack of love and mission towards the world. And so Paul's aim is to press the gospel down onto the church again, to shape the church into all that, it want, that God wants it to be. A city on a hill, a salt and light to the world, a pillar and a buttress of truth, and a display of the manifold wisdom of God. But that only happens when the gospel, the, the righteousness of the righteous life of Jesus Christ, his substitutionary death for the sins of his people, his glorious and resurrection, uh, victorious resurrection that has conquered sin and Satan and death, when that is front and center, that's when it shapes the life of a church. And so we've seen all the way through chapter one how he's been going through uh, explaining the message of the cross and how it's weak and foolish in the eyes of the world, but how it is the very power of God for salvation. And then last week, that this message that is weak and foolish saves weak and foolish people, like you and me and like the Corinthians, so that God receives the glory. And now this week, he's going to switch to the messengers of the cross, those who preach this foolish message, those who have one 
job. Okay. And it's important enough for the whole church to hear, so he's written it in the letter. For although the main topic of our passage this morning is preaching, it applies to all of us, whether we sit and hear in the pew. So I've got four things this morning for us to think about. Four, four points. The manner of faithful preaching, the priority of faithful preaching, the goal of faithful preaching, and then our response to faithful preaching. So let's begin with the manner of faithful preaching, the manner of faithful preaching. So the Corinthians thought that Paul had one job and that he failed miserably because the, their ideas about preachers and preaching were taken from the culture rather than from the scriptures. To understand, you probably need to have a little bit of background about the life in Corinth. So orators professional public speakers were the celebrities of the day and they were uh, the, the people who provided the primary entertainment for the city of Corinth. Public speaking, debating and philosophizing was the, the national pastime, if you like. And so these celebrity performers would go around from city to city, they would travel around and they would charge a fee to demonstrate their oratory and they would give public performances. And their goal was to impress their audiences with their beautiful words and the majesty of their delivery. And so the focus of these orators was not on what they said, and they would often argue both sides of an argument just to prove how wise and clever they were, but it was on how they said it. How logical, how eloquent, how witty, how entertaining, how intellectual, how emotive, how artistic, how powerful and persuasive was their performance. And so the Corinthians had adopted this worldly standard of evaluating preachers and public speakers and used them to evaluate Paul. And in their eyes, he had one job and he failed. Now, Paul doesn't care about the Corinthians' sermon evaluation of him, but he does remind them in verse 1 of the manner of his preaching when he came to them in the, in the first and early days of his arrival in Corinth, what he was like. And this verse 1 reflects on Acts 18 in the first 11 verses of that chapter. He describes the manner of his preaching. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the, the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom, which he means worldly wisdom. And then in verse 4, my message and my speech were not implausible words of worldly wisdom. Now, when Paul says that, he doesn't mean I'm a bad preacher or I'm a rubbish communicator. Paul was a very well-educated man. He was a very well-read man. He was a profound thinker. He had been formally trained. He, in, in Philippians chapter 3, when he puts out his curriculum uh, vitae, his CV of how religious he is, he tells us that he was a highly regarded Pharisee, esteemed by his peers. And so he was, a, he was no slouch. In fact, God used him, didn't he, to write the bulk of the New Testament. So this is a guy who knew the power of words. So what he means when he says in verse 1, he didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom or with plausible words of wisdom in chapter 4, is that he didn't come with the practices of the day to woo and wow the audiences. He didn't come in pompous eloquence. He didn't come with highbrow rhetoric to dazzle the crowds. He didn't come with the tricks of the trade of snake oil salesmen to try and manipulate the audience into some kind of response or to magnify himself. To Paul, the opposite was true. He was more concerned about what was said than how it was said. And he was more concerned about the content and the manner of his preaching 
than he was. Well, he was more concerned about the content than the manner. He was happy for it to sound weak and foolish in the eyes and ears of the Corinthians because it was the power of God. So Paul tells us that the manner of his preaching, it was done with a sense of inadequacy, it was done with a sense of vulnerability, it was done with a sense of weakness. He's going to tell us later in Corinthians that when he arrived in Corinth, he, was, he did so with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. In fact, that's verse 3, with fear and trembling. He recognized that in light of the great city and the reputation that Corinth had, who was going to listen to a weak preacher who had a thorn in the flesh. Who was going to listen to him? But he had to preach. He had to be a witness. He needed to tell the testimony of God. He was a witness to the power and the working of God in the life of Jesus Christ. And he knew that a witness doesn't put himself in the, in the center of the action, but they just faithfully tell what they have seen. So Paul's self-awareness of his own weakness and his own foolishness, it led him to abandon any kind of self-reliance that he had on himself and to cast himself utterly on the mercy and the grace of God who worked through him. Paul's goal in the manner of his preaching was for people to leave their meeting saying, what a saviour, rather than what a preacher. The manner of his preaching was simple, faithful proclamation of the testimony of God, what God has done for us in Christ. For therein lies inherent authority and power to save. Paul had one job and he didn't fail. Secondly, we see the priority of faithful teaching. This is in verse 2, the priority of faithful preaching. In verse 2, Paul tells us he decided, he resolved in some translations the word is actually a legal term. It means to render a verdict. So what Paul is saying here is this. I intentionally and deliberately and premeditatively arrived in Corinth and I determined that my preaching was going to be about one thing and one thing only, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now that doesn't mean that Paul wouldn't talk about other topics, that somehow he put his fingers in his ears and he was blissfully ignorant of everything else that needed to be said or things that were going on in life and in the church. In fact, as we work our way through 1 Corinthians, we're going to see Paul talks about a lot of topics. He talks about marriage. He talks about singleness. He talks about sex. He talks about love. He talks about food and drink. He talks about spiritual gifts. But everything that Paul talked about, whether it be joy, ethics, fellowship, work, doctrine, was always connected to Jesus. That's what he means by verse 2, that he was connecting every topic of life and life in the church with what Jesus had done and accomplished for us by dying on the cross for our sins. So whatever, Paul, whatever else Paul knew, whatever else Paul spoke about, whatever else Paul did, he always would think it and say it and do it with reference to Jesus. Because the cross was at the very center of his life and his ministry and his relationships and his preaching. And he would not shrink back from proclaiming the weak and foolish message of a crucified Messiah. And he would go further than just preach the message. He was determined to build his entire life and ministry on that firm foundation. It was the cross that set his passions. It was the cross that set his priorities for life and for his lifestyle choices and for the style and the content of his ministry. 
Paul was the original gospel-centered, Jesus-centered, cross-centered man. He had one job and he stuck to it. He dealt straightforwardly with the cross and with the gospel. It was the priority of his faithful preaching. And then thirdly, the goal of faithful preaching. The goal of faithful preaching. Why did Paul shun worldly methods of wisdom and oratory? Why not seize the day? Why not seize the world's way of doing things and create a bigger platform for the gospel and a more cultured version of the gospel that would tickle the ears of the Corinthians? Why did he resolve to do the things the way he did them? Well, he tells us in verse 5. He says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, Paul didn't want the Corinthians and their faith to rest upon his human skills, his human artistry, his human abilities, or his human persuasiveness. He wanted them to know that their faith was the result of the power of God through the Holy Spirit at work in their lives. The message of the cross is weak and foolish to the worldly wise, but it is the very power of God for salvation to those who will believe. And so Paul tells us he relied solely on the message of the cross so that any consequent results, so any salvations, any conversions, any transformed lives in the Corinthians, it was solely down to the work of the Spirit. It was solely down to God shining the light of the gospel into their hearts and lives and bringing them from death to life. You see, Paul wanted to make clear, he tells us, he adopted the manner of preaching and he adopted the the priority of the cross as his content so that the Corinthians and us would know that when people get saved, it's not about the performer or the presenter or the performance or the presentation. It's about the power of God inherent in the message of a crucified Messiah. I think Paul would have... uh, would have loved the words of Spurgeon where Spurgeon said the, the gospel is like a caged lion. It doesn't need defending, it just needs to be let out of the cage. That's what Paul was determined to do in Corinth. So even though humans can be very gifted in so many different ways, we can be gifted in, in astonishing ways, creative ways, inventive ways, intellectual ways. We cannot solve the greatest problem that we have at the heart level. What we need more than intellectualism, more than creativity, more than innovation and invention is we need a saviour. We need nothing less than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the only answer for redemption and the salvation of humans. So Paul may have been weak. His message may have appeared foolish. It may have lacked the rhetoric and the performance and the polish of the professional orators of his day, but the fact that Corinthians, pagan Corinthians, came to Christ demonstrates that the message does not lack power. And Paul's goal in faithful preaching, and and faithful preaching is that divine power clothed in human weakness, his goal was the transformation of lives for all eternity through the power of the Holy Spirit, who takes the words and the truth of the gospel that is proclaimed and works them into the ears and hearts of sinners, bringing us to faith and transforming us from the inside out. Paul had one job, 
and he was faithful. And it was evidenced by the transforming power of the Spirit in bringing Corinthians to faith in Jesus Christ. So there we go. So that's the manner of faithful preaching. We've seen the priority of faithful preaching and the goal of faithful preaching. That's the text. But now we want to see how it applies to all of us because it would be very easy just to say, well, there you go. You preach faithfully. You do this, what Paul says, and I'll just sit back and listen. But Paul addresses the entire church because he wants to apply what he says to all of us. So I've got the fourth point, which is our response. So these are reflections on the text, how we should respond in light of what we hear, because verses one to five are a, a, a rebuke to the Corinthians. They're a rebuke to the Corinthians that they had failed to respond faithfully to the preaching of the gospel. They had responded faithfully originally, but now they were looking for somewhere else. And so he's rebuking them and bringing them back. Now, I'm not in any way attempting to rebuke us. I'm just giving us two reflections in how we could respond. And I'm going to frame it like this, with a, with a warning and an encouragement. Okay, so a warning and an encouragement. And really, the warning and the encouragement are in answer to the question that I would phrase like this. How do we as a church and how do we as Christians strive to not be Corinthian in our response to what we hear preached and proclaimed in the scriptures? So a warning and an encouragement. Firstly, the warning. Over the last 30 to 40 years, Christians and church leaders of all stripes have been frantically searching for something that will really impact the culture and make a difference for Jesus. And in doing so, we're, we're, we're mimicking the glitziness of the Corinthian way of doing things, where they imagined that the only way to impact the world was to be like the world, to be personality-driven, to put leaders, preachers, authors, worship leaders, youth leaders on a pedestal, to be entertainment-led, to be image-focused. Now, long gone are the days where people cared about oratory and, put, and preaching and public speaking and philosophizing in, on Hyde Park Corner. We don't generally do that very much. We don't see crowds flocking to hear public preaching and public speaking. But we have replaced oratory and performance with a different kind of performance. So we rely on the music to woo people, or slick videos, or lighting, or smoke machines, or hip pastors with great tattoos, or anything that the world says, that's cool, we try and adopt it into the church. And Paul would probably stand here this morning and tell us if we do that, it's the wrong path to walk. Now, he wouldn't say, oh, well, you just be fuddy-duddy and boring and irrelevant. Don't worry about how church looks from the outside to the world. He wouldn't say it's an excuse for traditionalism or being obscure for obscure sake. But he would say, if you go the way of the Corinthians, what you might do is you, you might enjoy some limited success. You might enjoy some temporary success. You might draw, enjoy some superficial success. You might draw a crowd. You will certainly reflect the culture back to it and probably produce a kind of a feel-good religion. But it won't produce biblical Christians. It won't produce people who can stand firm in the days of persecution and suffering. 
It won't produce Christians who, when the going gets tough, remain faithful to the gospel and continue to trust the Lord. You see, beneath the surface of everybody's lives is an ache that won't go away. Whether it be something that we've experienced previously in our lives or certainly something that people that we might know outside of this room or not watching this video this morning will, will feel. We all have an ache beneath the surface of our lives. And we all try to ignore it or pretend that it doesn't exist or bury it under busyness and activity, but it really doesn't ever disappear. And that's because God has made us for another world, for a better world than this. And until that world arrives, we groan for what we do not have. So an aching soul, feeling a sense of Emptiness on the inside is not a sign of neurosis and madness. It's a, it's a sign of spiritual reality and spiritual neediness and spiritual emptiness that we need filling. And the answers that we have been searching for as, as churches and church leaders over the last 30 or 40 years, and we've looked in video and music and, and different places to try and attract people so that they might hear something about Jesus who they can let into their hearts but the answer we've actually been searching for has been staring us in the face the whole time. Paul would say it's this, it's Christ and him crucified. And so the warning and the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is this, do we really believe that the gospel that is the power of God to transform people? Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that the gospel is the power of God to transform someone eternally? And if we do, then we've got to proclaim it. If we do, then we've got to hold fast to it. We can't dilute it down or distort it to fit in with current politically correct cultural tastes. So Paul would warn us, don't abandon the message of the cross. Don't be Corinthian in your approach to it. Don't look for something else. Don't lose your zeal and passion for the gospel because it appears to be foolish and weak in the eyes and ears of the world. Because it only a crucified Messiah can answer the ache that won't go away. For the message of the cross is the wisdom and power of God unto salvation for all who would believe. So that's the warning. That's a, one response. The second response is this. It's an encouragement, an encouragement to us. As Christians, we have one job. All right. We have one glorious consuming priority, and that is to keep the main thing, the main thing, to let Jesus and his cross be at the center of all of our thoughts and our desires and our passions and our hopes and our lives and our church. So my encouragement to all of us this morning is what Paul says in verse two, to resolve, to decide, to be like Paul and know nothing except the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We must resolve like Paul to be about Christ and him crucified only because it's only through the death and resurrection of Christ that redeemed sinners receive anything from God. If there was no cross, we get judgment and condemnation and punishment that we thoroughly deserve, but with the cross, everything that we now enjoy in Jesus Christ, we owe it to the life and death of Christ. Every blessing in this life, every blessing in the heavenly places, every blessing that will be ours in eternity, every trial that we suffer and that God then turns into an eternal weight of glory is all transformed and purchased for us and 
given to us freely through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all purchased by the death of Christ on the cross. And so as a church, we need to be, we want to be, we are striving to be intentionally gospel-centered, intentionally Jesus-centered, intentionally cross-centered. So that when people say, well, tell me what Grace Church is all about. We don't go first to the music or to the ways that we're doing things in the community, like Operation Christmas Child. We don't go to the spiritual gifts or the Reformed theology or the church membership that we practice or any other of those important and good areas. But we say we're a church all about Jesus. We're a church that's committed to keeping Jesus and the message of the cross at the center of everything that we do together. And we must be careful that we do not assume the cross by moving on from it and looking for different ways and means to approach the culture. And we must not replace the cross by letting our greatest passions be elsewhere in politics or in social issues or in how we parent. We have one job, and that is to boast in the Lord, as Paul says in verse 31. For the self-substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on the cross is the most important event in all of history. It's the heart of Christianity and it must be the heart of our lives too. For the cross has the power to save sinners. It has the power to put marriages back together. It has the power to break addictions. It has the power to lift people from the pit of despair. It has the power to bring light into the darkness. And the way that the power of God is experienced is in the life of a believer and in the life of the church is that we go deeper into the glories of Calvary. Jerry Bridges says this, hopefully it'll come up on the screen. As Christians, we don't meet the Savior at the cross and then move past it or outgrow our need of it. The cross is not merely a first step towards spiritual development. It's the all-encompassing foundation for Christian growth. So think about any area in your life in which you want to grow right now. Faith to replace your unbelief. A desire to grow in contentment and complain less. A desire to grow in spiritual purity and honor God. Uh, sorry, sexual purity and honor God with your body. A desire to grow more patient with your spouse or your kids. The cross provides the power for it tells us that we are forgiven and that we have the life and the spirit of Jesus within us. If we had time, and I recommend you read this this afternoon or sometime during this week, if you read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, Peter tells us, he gives us a, a long list of virtues. He, he tells us that God has granted his divine power to us so that we have everything we need for life and godliness. And then he talks about faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. And he says this, but if you lack any of these things, it's because you have forgotten that you have been cleansed from your former sins. At the very foundation of our Christian lives, all that we need for life and godliness is the forgiveness of sins through the message of the cross. So if we're not growing, if we're not flourishing, Peter and Paul would tell us it's because we've forgotten that our sins have been forgiven. We've forgotten the message of the cross and we need to get back to glorying in the glories of Calvary. So my encouragement as I close is this, draw near to the cross again. 
Let Christ and him crucified be your all in all. See, hear and taste the great exchange, how all of your sin, all of our transgressions, all of our iniquities, all of our judgment and punishment was placed on Christ. And we received all of his life, his righteousness, his peace and right standing and sonship with God. We have one job, to be about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let's not fail. Let's pray.